Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with actor David Tennant. When David Tennant was a child in Scotland, he spent his free time running around the back garden, pretending to be characters from TV shows he loved. In honor of his favorite show, Doctor Who, his grandmother knit him a multicolored scarf to wear, just like the Doctor, and he let his imagination run wild. During those times, David came to the realization he wanted to become an actor, even though he didn't know any actors or really even understand how one goes about becoming an actor. His parents were pushing him towards a more practical, stable career, but David was having none of it. As he says, I was very set on it, and I never wavered from it. At 17, David got into drama school, becoming the youngest student in his class, and the world opened up for him. After his education and some moderate success in Scotland, David went to London to find out if he could make it in the big leagues, and he became one of the youngest actors ever admitted to the Royal Shakespeare Company. Apparently, he knew what he was doing, though it never felt like that to him. To this day, he feels like he's going to be found out as a fraud. As he describes it, fear motivates everything I do. It's a constant engine. There's always this demon on my shoulder that is saying, you can't do this. Between his work at the Royal Shakespeare Company, shows like Broadchurch, and most recently, Good Omens on Amazon Prime, where he gets to play the demon for a change, David has amassed a large body of work and a legion of fans. His biggest claim to fame in the UK was his role as the 10th iteration of The Doctor in Doctor Who, a role he'd been preparing for his entire life. What he couldn't have prepared for was the effects the massive fan appeal of the show had on his private life, which changed overnight. David joins off camera to talk about the self-critic that always seems to undermine him, why losing your anonymity feels nothing like what he imagined it would, and the retirement speech he prepares as a backup in case he forgets his lines on stage. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, David. Hi, Sam. Thanks for doing this. Great pleasure. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I'm a big fan of your work, and I just want to dive right in because there's so much to talk about with you. Uh, But I was poking around on YouTube the other day, and I saw something that I'd never seen. I think it's it's specific to the UK. Okay. The uh, National Television Awards. Oh, right, right, yeah. And it's this show where... I don't know what the equivalent would be here in the U.S., but... People's Choice probably is the closest, I think, yeah. Okay, but it seems like they were giving you an award, like their favorite actor of the decade (laughs) award or something, and it seemed like you didn't know it was going to be you. Yeah, they sort of spring it on you. Right, but there was something incredibly moving about watching you react to seeing this film. It's kind of like a This Is Your Life. There's stuff about Doctor Who, there's stuff about Broadchurch, there's Richard II, and there's Hamlet, and there's all these people from your life, Mm. including your father, that they filmed talking about you. And and just watching the emotions go across your face, it was really moving. It was. Well, I I think when something like that gets sprung on you and suddenly you're in a vast arena and all these people are sort of watching you watch this film about yourself and people from your life, as you say, kind of coming up and being nice about you, it is quite, it's quite overwhelming. And then my dad, yeah, my dad was the kicker to have him at the end because he was already sick by then and um, he died not very long after that. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, to have him on there was, yeah, it was quite, it was quite moving, yeah. It must have been a strange thing to, to sort of 
have that, especially at, this is not like a lifetime achievement award where you're where you're 75 years old no. and giving it to you. I suppose, <laughs> yeah. But it, well, that, I, that's why it was uh, uh, quite shocking because yeah. I didn't feel like I'd done enough to merit this, or sort of was, was at a stage where that's the sort of thing that would happen to you. So yes, it was all a bit of a shock and all a bit overwhelming. And when you're in the room with all the, your peers and obviously people you respect, does it make you feel like, oh yes, I belong here, or does it make you feel embarrassed almost? Good question. I think there is embarrassment, certainly, because all those thoughts are going through your head. going, I don't deserve this. I'm not worthy of this kind of recognition. Do you feel that way in that moment? Oh, well, totally. Yeah, overwhelmingly so. So that's, yeah, to get sort of past that and then think, and now I've got to go up and sort of try and merit this and have, have some words to say that will be coherent and that, that will make sense and that will somehow match the moment. And also, you, you want to kind of enjoy it. You want to kind of go, this is amazing. Right. <laughs> so, this is a lovely thing. And, 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 uh, uh, and it is overwhelming, but you, all, but you want to try and drink in the moment as well. And it must it be hard to watch yourself too. I, like, <laughs> do you remember the first time you saw yourself on screen? Oh, Yeah, I did a thing when I was 16 for Scottish television, okay. a, little, a little children's drama. So that was probably the first time I saw myself, you know, beyond a kind of home video. Right, yeah. right. Saw myself doing acting. What was that like? I think it was quite painful, because of course, I, I still find that. Watching anything I do back is, you're, you're just aware of, you can see all the joins and you can see your own sort of... What do you mean, see the joins? You like, can see, you know, you, you think you're giving this wonderful, nuanced, subtle, uh, glorious performance, and then you watch it back and you can see you can see yourself kind of joining the dots and you can see yourself. All the, all the things that you don't do well enough are, are writ large for you. Hopefully they're not writ large for everyone else in, to quite the same degree. But that's, that's, for me, that's part of the process of watching back what you do. It's a, it's a, it's a learning curve every time. I so think. it's worth it. I think, yeah, I feel, I feel like I, I almost always do it. Um, I, I rarely enjoy it, but uh, it, it's part of... It, it helps me to kind of monitor what I think I'm doing and what I'm actually doing, yeah. Well, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, I want to get into Doctor Who and Broadchurch okay. and all that stuff, but you have this new show on Amazon called Good Omens yeah. with uh, Michael Sheen. That's right, And yeah. then John Hamm's on there and Francis yeah. McDormand narrates. Yeah. And it's basically the two of you, uh, Michael Sheen plays an angel, you play a demon, mm -hmm. and you've been entrusted with uh, bringing upon the apocalypse by yes. dropping off a baby. Yes. You... You give it to the wrong Slightly couple. messed it up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and the the world is held in the balance. But but what it really is is it's sort of this two hander between you and Michael Sheen. And it made me curious: is there something specific you do about reading a script for the first time? Not really. I I think reading the script for the first time is the closest you'll get to watching the show. I I always think so. When you nice. when you read it for the first time, if it grips you and if you just enjoy it then that's a, as close a, a, a signifier as you're going to have to right. what the finished product is going to be like. Because even the second time you go back and read something, you're, you're reading it with informed opinions and with, uh, uh, with, with a lack of objectivity. Do you start so, picturing yourself the second time I, you go through it? Sometimes, the, sometimes you can see yourself in something straight away, which, which can be very seductive. Right. Uh, sometimes you can't, which can be a little bit thinking, why have I been sent this? I don't know, this, doesn't, this doesn't feel like it's right for me at all. Um, but, but I think that first read-through is really important because I think your gut instinct uh, is usually, you can, you can go back and sort of convince yourself about something. Go, oh, you know what? Reading this again, I do appreciate this. Or maybe it could be that. Or, oh, now I realise that so-and-so's in it. I can see why. Da -da -da. 
But I, I, I think there's nothing to quite beat that first impression that you get. Right. One of the attractions for Good Omens was I, Michael Sheen was already attached. Okay. So I knew that all this stuff would be playing opposite him, and that was that was hugely enticing because I've known Michael for years. We've never really worked together. So to know that you've got someone that you really rate and that will be great fun to play opposite, that's a huge inducement right there. Well, what struck me about watching is that it's really a love story between the well, two of you. Well, it is. It absolutely is, yeah. But did the love story jump out kind of right yeah, away? Yeah, I think it does. Well, it's, it's a buddy movie, isn't it? And they're yeah. all love stories, aren't they? Yeah. Um, and, and it's an unlikely duo, and, there are, they, and yet they seem the yin and yang of each other all the way through. They are, they are polar opposites. They are heaven and hell. And yet it's the common ground that they've found that has taken them through eternity. And, that. and I think the modern element of it is that these two people who are supposedly diametrically opposed find that they have more in common than yes. the big corporation. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> right. And that they, as the two supernatural creatures, are more human than anyone else in their yes. story. Yeah. Speaking of Michael Sheen as being sort of one of your contemporaries, does that bring about... In a sporting sense, like, oh, I want to be good in this. Like, I, I'm sure you've yeah. looked up to his work for a long time. Yeah, I've quite. It certainly makes you, uh, it makes you prepare. It makes you get ready. It makes you think, oh, this is, I've got I've to bring my A game here. I mean, I don't think you ever don't do that. I don't think you ever think, oh, it's just some actor I've never heard of. I'll just turn up and do it. I think, right. but, but, it, but it, it, it certainly. Good to hear for those other actors <laughs> who are watching. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that is sort of it. I think that's pretty sort of pretty much page one. You kind of always turn up and do your best, don't you? But th- but if you've got someone, Michael, you know you're going to get sort of inspired in the scene. It's going right. to be fun, and you don't want to sort of let him down. I suppose you want to think, well, he's, you know, he's he, he's great, and he's creative, and he's sparky, and he's uh, you you want to sort of be matching that. And I think I think we sort of found in each other quite similar actors. I think we both sort of approach things in quite in a similar way. We kind of turn up with a sense of what a scene is and, and ideas that we might want to bring to the way our character might be going through it, and, and, uh, but also a kind of openness to whatever turns up. So I think we both responded to the way each other works because I think we recognised it and sort of thought, oh, this is fun. I'm sort of... Because uh, it's, quite, it's quite unusual to be... We are kind of contemporaries. We're, we, we would often be up for the same sort of part. Oh, would you? I guess so, Yeah. Um, uh, so it's unlikely that there'd be often room in a show for two actors like right. ourselves. It would usually be one or the other of us, really, because they are kind of two halves of the same character. Ultimately, that's that's uh, interestingly when Neil Gaiman first wrote this as a short story, there was only one uh, character, and then when Terry Pratchett came along, he he uh, suggested splitting them into two, making oh, it an angel and a demon. So yes, it's it, it's quite an unusual to be sharing the space with someone who. Uh, you often wouldn't be in the in the scene with usually you know there'd, right. there'd, be, there'd be one character played by a sort of forty to fifty year old um, white British person. You know, so <laughs> exactly. uh, it, it was it, it was great to get to play all sort of be on set almost every day with with Michael and to be sort of sparring with him. Is fear ever a motivator for that too? Oh, fear motivates everything I do at all times. It's Is that constant, true? A constant engine, yeah. So when I say that, what's the picture that comes to your mind? I think it's just that sense that you're always waiting to be found out, that you're always, it, it's, uh, for me, that, that that's, that's what being an actor is about, sort of going, oh, this is all, it's all, on one level, this is all a bit silly, and I can't really believe I'm getting away with this, and at some point, someone's going to tap me on the shoulder and go, come on, you've had your fun, 
move on. There's some people who can actually do this. There's some proper actors in the world. Uh, stop pretending and move on. You're a little wee nyaf from Paisley. You don't really get to do this. It's um, funny that, that even at this place in your career that you've there, that voice is still there. Oh, it gets louder. It doesn't get quiet. Why is that? That, that the, all the affirmation in the world, all the platitudes that we'll talk about that you've reached and, and, and even the, the uh, special recognition award. Right. Well, because... Uh, There's no special recognition that's There's enough. never enough. No. Because there are no amount of good reviews that won't make you see the one bad one. Um, and the one bad one is the one that will somehow resonate with you. All the You'll be like, keenly. that's the truth. Yeah, that's the truth. All these people who say I'm great, they don't know. Right. Um, but I don't, I, I say that like it's a bad thing. And uh, obviously on some level, it, it probably is quite negative. But uh, I, I don't hate it. I do see that. I think that, that there's, a, there's an engine to that that's quite useful. Right. That sort of constant self-doubt. and Because I guess if you just thought you were great all the time, you wouldn't. What would you, you just sort of, you'd get lazy, wouldn't you? Yeah, you know, it's funny you say that, and I'm reminded of the podcast, because you do a podcast mm. as well, and you did one with Michael Sheen, and, yeah. and the story he told that resonates with me, based on what you're saying, is that he tells a story about uh, an actor came to see him in a play and, and said, don't get too comfortable. Don't, or don't start think enjoying yourself too Don't much. start enjoying yourself too Yeah, much. yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Michael was really interesting. And, and that was good, that conversation that he did do. He was very kind, kindly did the podcast. And uh, that was a conversation we'd never actually had about how his, he'd had a sort of hubristic moment at drama school right. where he had sort of thought, I'm the greatest living actor. Uh, and then kind of realised that maybe it wasn't as straightforward as that and that one had to kind of challenge oneself and keep working. And, uh, and that's... Uh, it was fascinating because he, 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 that's not how he approaches the work. He approaches the work sort of as someone who, 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 who's serious and, and works hard and, and, and right. always feels that there's something to strive for and attain. Um, he doesn't, he, there's, there's not a speck of laziness about what he does or, 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 or lack of effort or lack of sort of preparation or concentration. So it was interesting that he'd had that moment, but, but I, guess, I guess what he was saying was that it had been very informative for him and it made him be constantly addressing what he does and not get too comfortable, not yeah. enjoy yourself too much. Do you think that's a curse, kind of, that maybe to be good at this sort of weird profession, mm -hmm. you sort of have to have that fear as a motivator? Because I don't know if that's true in all professions, that fear is going to drive you to prepare. Isn't it, is it not? I, f I feel like it's how I would get through anything. I feel whatever my profession would be, I, I feel that's what I'd be doing. You think if you were a doctor, you'd be like, maybe this is the time. I can't pull that I, appendix I mis out. I misdiagnose someone and, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and send them to their doom. Yeah, I, I sort <laughs> of worry that I would... It feels such a kind of natural tick within me. that, I, that Or maybe that's, that's your personality trait. That, well, that's what I mean, yeah. I yeah. think that's it. I think, I think it's just... With it, I think that's what my DNA prescribes, really. Does that, that, does that voice ever get the upper hand? Oh, it's a constant battle. Yeah, I, yeah, I'd say it does. Yeah, it's a constant... It's a constant battle to kind of feel confident, and 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 to f and, and you're sort of and that the moment you feel confident, you feel like you're sort of things are happening and surfing and happening kind of instinctively. Then you second guess yourself, and then you're trying to banish that voice again to get back to the thing where it feels like you were being creative. It's it's a right. Yeah, it's a wriggle. You, I think you feel it most keenly on stage because that's. Because that's so in the moment, you know, you're, you you step out on stage and you're in front of an audience, and it's and it's happening in that second. Right. And you don't get 
a time where they call cut to kind of reflect and try again, or you, 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 you're, you're sort of you're very exposed for that sort of two, three hours a night when you're out on the stage, and that's where that's where I've I, I've struggled most keenly with a sort of little demon's voice in your head saying, "You can't do this. You can't do this. Not only can't you do this, you can't even." It, it is impossible to remember a sequence of words and repeat them in front of a group of human beings. That's not something that you, your brain will start to convince you that that's, that's not something that it's possible for a human being to do. Even though you're on performance 100 and you've already done it quite successfully, you'll start, your brain will start trying to kind of, I don't know where this, I don't know what a therapist would tell me about this, but um, that, that your, your brain starts to try and undermine you. I, I'm talking about my brain like it's not connected to me, aren't I? Yeah. But like it's some sort of separate demon, that demon on your shoulder that will sort of pull the carpet. It's just always trying to pull the carpet from under you, always trying to um, set you up. I, I've been on stage kind of reciting lines that I know very well and at the same time composing the, the speech in my head where I'm going to have to turn to the audience and go, ladies and gentlemen, I'm, I, I'm, I'm so sorry. It turns out I can't do this anymore and I'm going to have to go and probably retire. So thank you very much for coming. Um, I'm sure we'll manage to refund your tickets. I'm going, I'm going off stage now to uh, jump off a cliff. Uh, That's the exact definition of your brain undermining you. And I've played bands a lot in my life and it's the same thing with songs you've sung a hundred times. Right, right. And then you get to the beginning of the second verse and all, like, just thinking, oh. could I could I forget this? It's, it's giving Makes me you the heebie-jeebies just as you describe it. Absolutely. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. And singing, I, I haven't sung a lot, but the, uh, the last time I did a play there was a little song in it, only a little song, but that was the bit every night I got terrified about. And it's something about the kind of the, the metronome of fear ticking around, the, the idea that I guess it's you can take the pressure off yourself slightly if it's a long speech because you can pace it yourself and you can t- you you can right no that that second verse is coming it's right coming. after the chorus yeah and it's going to go da, 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 and you have to start That's right. and if it's not there it's not there so I think I think I don't know that I could be a singer for that very reason I think God, I, I used cripple to tape, myself I used to tape the first line of every song <laughs> onto the top of the guitar because if I got the first line it was like the key that unlocked and then you're you. fine yeah yeah yeah. 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 Is there s- tricks like that that you've done on stage to, to sort of get you there? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and anything that takes that pressure off can be can be, very useful. I, I did a play once, called The Real Inspector Hound, where I played a, a theatre critic. So it's a sort of play with you're watching a play and you're watching people watching a play, and uh, I, I, you sit there with a the theatre program and. I got the heebie-jeebies about that, so I wrote out my entire part in <laughs> tiny little letters inside this theatre programme. And once I did that, I was absolutely fine. And I you probably didn't have to look at it. Never had to look at it once, but you well, knew that it was there. That's such a strange phenomenon. It's also strange that you can almost learn something so well that it gets put away somewhere in your brain where you can't get back to it. Yeah. Like what you're describing, you would think first two weeks would be the hardest. But, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's the hundredth performance. I think it is. I think it's the hundredth performance that's hardest. Because the first two weeks you're worried about it. The first two weeks you've got proper, sort of identifiable, legitimate nerves. So that's right. sort of fine in a way. That's kind of, you, that makes sense. It's, it's, it's later on when your brain starts doing those weird tricks that don't make any sense. Yeah. And actually the cure to it is to just go, I'm getting that panic, I'm getting that panic. Just breathe because you know it's in there. And if you can get to that, you, you, you sort of ease back into it again. What's the example of the most nightmarish moment uh, on stage that, that you're thinking of? Oh, well, I did it once on the press night of Romeo and Juliet at the Royal Shakespeare Company. 
it was our second press night. It wasn't quite as bad as it might have been. But again, that, that speaks to what we've been saying because we'd already done a long run of the play in Stratford and Avon and the whole, the whole season moved to London and sort of you have another kind of version of opening night. But yeah, I'd done it for 100 performances. I knew it was in there. And then I started having that. Then what happened? It was coming. Now, I can't remember the actual line now. It was, this was quite a long time ago. I was playing Romeo. It was a few years back. Um, and uh, <laughs> uh, it was coming up and I, I, I did, my brain started doing that thing. Well, you don't know how this speech ends. You don't know how this speech ends. And I just sort of made a bit up. Really? And I'm thinking, I'm making up Romeo, Shakespeare, Shakespeare <laughs> the Royal Shakespeare Company, to, a, to an audience of critics who've seen this play 150 times over their careers. They're like pulling out their... But you know what? Nobody noticed. You're kidding me. Nobody noticed. I sort of, I made sense of it. I didn't, it wasn't in particularly uh, elaborate Shakespearean language and I curtailed it a little bit. But I made, I, I knew what the sense was. I just couldn't quite figure out what the words were. And I just sort of. You improvised Shakespeare. I, I did, I did a little bit. Yeah. And nobody, nobody could tell. You know what that speaks to? It speaks to this idea that we think, we think there's always others that, are more sophisticated, intelligent, schooled than us. Absolutely. And then you do something like that and you totally get away with it. And if anything, if there's any, uh, uh, anything to credit sort of getting older and having done it a bit and experience with it, it's, it's that. You can go, do you know what? Yes, this is terrifying, but it, it will be fine and nobody will probably know and you'll be okay. Right. So that's the only thing that you do sort of gain as you go on, that, that nothing is quite as bad as it feels. Because at the end of the day, it is only acting. I'm not the doctor misdiagnosing someone. I'm right. just upstairs. I'm just up on a stage pretending to, pretending to be someone else. It's not the end of the world. And if you can sort of keep things in perspective, it always helps, I find. Well, I, you know, it makes me think of you wanting to be an actor from a very young age. Yeah. Because I think that when something is your dream and you do really want it, it does feel like there's huge stakes. I, and it always feeling a bit like an imposter as well. I mean, I didn't come from a world where there were actors or people who... Yeah, was, it, was there an actor or somebody in your no. town or your family? No, not at all. I'd never met an actor, really. So, uh, so the, the notion was a bit obscure, really, that I would right. do that. And, and so therefore, I think there was always a sense that this isn't really what people like you end up doing. So, so you probably won't get away with it. You probably don't really deserve to be here. I think that's part of what feeds into all that. Well, yeah. what did your parents think of your original notion? Because how old were you when you sort of announced to the family that... Oh, I grew up absolutely certain that that's what I was going to do. So from a very weirdly young age. And it was something I was very set on. And an idea that grew up alongside me as I began to understand more of what that meant and what right. the United was. And I'd been, because it basically started from watching the TV and watching shows on the TV and wanting to be part of that storytelling. And then, of course... I would go to the cinema and then eventually go to the theatre. So, so the, the idea expanded and grew up with me and I never wavered from it. And then as I got older and they realised I was serious, I think they got a bit nervous about it because we didn't know any actors and certainly all, all one understands from the acting profession is that most actors don't work, which is right. horribly true. Sure. That, that it's very difficult to make a living, to have a, a house and a family and all those things that one aspires of for our children, mostly. You know, you want them to have a comfortable life. You want them to have the things that, that you have enjoyed and, and you want them to be secure. Well, it's such a funny position to be in as a parent because you don't want to be the person that says, look, the odds are that you're not going to be able to do this. Yeah. And then if it does work out, they're always going to see you as the person who didn't believe in them. I versus, suppose, yeah. Versus, you know. They tried to strike a middle ground. They... they, they uh, 
they tried to get me to become maybe a drama teacher so that I could, I had, or, or at least train as one. So then, then if the acting didn't work out, you had something to fall back on. All perfectly sound, proper, correct advice. But when any, you're young... When you're, uh, yeah, when you're like, young, you're just hearing blah, 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 yeah. whatever, I'll be fine. But how did you sort of steel yourself against, because I would imagine not even just at home, but uh, at school and when you would speak to people, the response, I would assume, a lot of the times would be, well, that's a daft idea. Yep. Yeah. So how would you sort of stay sort of on course with I think with it was just that? the idealism and the naivety of youth, actually. Yeah. I went, and I went to drama school at 17. So I sort of got in there before I sort of grew up enough to realize how stupid an idea it was. I, I think I probably would have, if I'd left it a bit, if I'd done something else first, if I had, for instance, done some teacher training first, I think that would probably have been enough time I'm very glad I sort of got got going as early as I did because I do worry I'd have I'd have given up if it had been too tough or if I'd if I'd realised how implausible it was if I'd really realised how implausible it was. I'd did you spend a lot of time alone as a kid? Like, were you a kid that would go in your room and your imagination would take over? And- yeah, I, I did actually. I'd spent a lot of time in the back garden making up stories, making up TV shows, in just which in I'd your head. All the parts. Yeah. What do you think was the thing that that really kicked your imagination off? Like, was it television? Was it certain programs? Or I think it probably was television, television yeah. and comic books, and yeah, that sort of. It was very much that those sort of genre shows that, as a kid, things like Doctor Who, which I was right. watching as a kid, that just felt like the the, the the kind of extraordinariness, the excitement of those worlds. I think, yeah. Can you explain the phenomenon of Doctor Who for, for the U.S.? Because mm. I don't know if a lot of people know the difference between you probably walking around in Los Angeles versus you walking around in London. It used to be night and day. Yeah, it used to be. Uh, when I first did Doctor Who, it was very much a British phenomenon. It had a cult following over here, undoubtedly, and, and has had. Doctor Who's been running for 55 years. 55 years. 55 years. Is it yeah. the longest running television show? Well, it had a break as well. So there's, it's, you can quibble. The longest running no, non-consecutive? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure there are. In fact, there is something. We, we were at a San Diego Comic Con once when the Guinness Book of Records gave us a gave us a, a, a qualification for something, but I can't... It, it, there is a slightly, you ha, a slightly nuanced wording as to There's quite an what it is. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and it's utterly ubiquitous uh, in the UK. Uh, everyone knows it. Even if you don't follow the show, if you grew up with it, as I did, it was, it was something everybody knew what it was, and everyone knew what the TARDIS was, which is the yeah, shit sure. that moves around, and everyone knows what the Daleks are, which are the sort of the, the, the arch enemy of the, of the Doctor. Uh, and it's yeah, it's just part of the cultural furniture. Yeah, it used to not be that here. Nowadays, though, it's it it feels like it's it's reaching a similar sort of ubiquity. Well, well it's it's findable on Amazon exactly. and everything. So it's, yes. yeah, yeah. I, I think I think there's a phrase that that was actually invented around Doctor Who, which was behind the couch viewing. Yes, which is. This was a family show, yeah. so to speak, but these kids would watch it with their parents and they'd hide behind the couch during the scary parts. That's, yeah. And I was curious, like, how you were watching this show so young. and if You know what I mean? Like, was it scaring you, but you loved no. it? or No, it didn't scare me at all. I used to, I used to want it to be, I, want the, I wanted the monsters to be more horrifying. I, want, I, loved the, I loved the scariness of it. I loved the kind of thrill of it. So would you fantasize about 
being him or having your own time machine or like what was what was the fantasy for well you? certainly those stories that i was making up in the back garden were often doctor who based yeah right. the iteration of the doctor that was around when i was young was uh played by an actor called tom baker and he had a long multicolored knitted scarf right yeah and my granny knitted me one she did she did so i would put that on and run around the garden do you still have it i do still have it yeah yeah you wear it to bed every night, don't you? No. I haven't. It's, it's in storage right now, but it, I know where it is. Hey, folks. Let's take a quick break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, Helix Sleep. Now, I can tell you that I sleep on a Helix mattress every night, and I love it. I am someone that has destroyed my body over the years doing things like surfing and skateboarding and motorcycles and carrying kids on my shoulders and all that stuff. And I've had a lot of back problems in my life. And I can tell you honestly that since I started sleeping on a Helix sleep mattress, I've just not had those problems and I get a great sleep. And the question is, why do I get a great sleep? Well, for one thing, they have a unique way of matching a mattress to a person. You go online to Helix Sleep, you take a quiz, it takes about two minutes, and it matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. Whether you're a side sleeper or a hot sleeper, whether you like a plush or a firm bed, with Helix there's no more confusion and no more compromising. Helix Sleep was even awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2019 by GQ and Wired Magazine. And CNN called it the most comfortable mattress they've ever slept on. So just go to helixsleep.com slash off-camera Take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. And for couples, Helix can even split the mattress down the middle, providing individual support needs and feel preferences for each side. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up if you don't love it. But you will. And here's the best deal. Helix is offering up to $125 off all mattress orders for our listeners. So you can get up to $125 off at helixsleep.com slash off-camera. That's helixsleep.com slash off-camera for up to $125 off your mattress order. helixsleep.com slash off-camera. Now back to the show. So I think it's interesting when someone discovers what they want to do so early in life. And I was curious how that sort of played out for you when you were in high school I knew what I wanted. I wanted to go to drama school. I wanted to sort of follow that path. So I think I was less worried about it than everyone else. Everyone else was trying to make sure I had a sort of fully rounded education so that when the acting inevitably didn't work out, I could retrain as something other than, uh, a, you know, someone who sells shoes or whatever. Right. You know, they were hopeful that I could... Because I was... I, I didn't do badly at school. I, I, I was... I, I could do maths. I could... I, was, I, I had a certain uh, talent for... English, so uh, you know, I I I wasn't without hope for uh, in terms of what I might do academically, but I hated it. I mean, I hated it. I could do it, but I just thought, why am I here? This is so dull. And was there a drama department at your high school, or did you no. find your you didn't find your people till you went to drama school? That's right. Yeah, there was there was a, a couple of sort of plays done on a kind of extracurricular basis by whatever teacher was kind of could be could be interested enough that term. But, it, but it, there wasn't, I, I didn't study drama right. there at all. So yeah, I went to drama school at 17 and it was like, I, I felt so liberated and so excited to be Yeah, what was that like to find the, your oh people? God, I loved it. 
I loved it because I was also, I was young. So I was surrounded by people who were that bit older. So they all felt, they all seemed so sophisticated, so grown up and so cool. Um, and I spent all day doing this thing that I'd dreamed I was going to get to do. And I had none of the cynicism that some of the others who were a bit older and who'd maybe gone off and done a bit of youth theatre here or even had, you know, maybe worked professionally a little. They, they all had very different life experiences and, and, and had been out of school for a while. Whereas I was used to kind of going from one class to another. Because drama school was quite heavily timetabled. It wasn't like going to university where you'd get an afternoon to study. You know, right. you'd go from one class to another and you'd do... And I loved that. I had absolute structure and order. I didn't have to... So now you love school. And now I loved school, yeah. What did three you love of, about... very happy years. Did you love this, like, I'm assuming when you go to drama school, first year or two, you're, you're hitting every, every aspect from improv to comedic to more of a historical... Movement classes, voice yeah. classes, fencing classes, so you can do stage fighting, all that stuff. I mean, it was bliss. And as you're in drama school and you're discovering the whole world, did you have sort of a... a ultimate dream that you were going for or, or a picture of what your career should be or what you wanted to reach? I had things that felt like sort of heady aspirations, like going, playing at the National Theatre, being part of the Royal Shakespeare Company, uh, being on TV, <laughs> you right. know, being in a movie. These things all felt like, wow, wouldn't that be great? But my baseline was, again, because everyone had been telling me all my life, you can't be an actor because you don't, you, you know, you don't really get work as an actor. People don't really work as actors. It's funny when you say that, though, because even as a kid, your response would be, well, what about all these people in all these films and plays? And See, funny enough, that wasn't my response. I don't think that was my response. I just kind of went, right, I hear what you're saying. I'm still going to give it a go, though. I'm still going to do it. So what that but, is but it, in you. It did mean that I, all I was really aspiring to was like, wouldn't it be great if I could just make a living at this? Wouldn't that be amazing if I could go from one job to another? then I would be doing all the thing that I've been told I can't do. Right. That would be amazing. So that was sort of, I just wanted to get a job and go, I've done it, I've done it, I've got a job, and then I'll get another job. That was sort of all, all that I hoped for, really. So you got in the Royal Shakespeare Company very early. Like, you were pretty young. I must have been, yeah, 22, something like that, yeah. You know, I think of my own self as a 22-year-old, and it was about punk rock and rebellion and what right. made you want to study a 400 year old language and well because it felt quite sexy and rock and roll really it get, did get, yeah to be in Stratford upon avon doing shakespeare plays that's that's an, uh, that's yeah that felt great like all these things it felt like something i would I, that felt like a very unlikely thing to achieve right. so it just it was just very exciting yeah so i i heard you talking about the process of understanding text with shakespeare and and you described like some sort of uh, arduous weeks long table read process. Right, yeah. Where everyone reads all the other parts except yeah, their own. Yeah. And obviously, as an actor, if you don't understand the meaning, you cannot, well, impart the meaning. Quite, yeah. So tell me about that, sort of that awakening of language to you. Well, the thing about Shakespeare is, yes, it's, it is the language is old. So it's not immediately familiar to you. But the process of of understanding it is the same as the process of understanding an Arthur Miller play or today's New York Times. It's, you know, it's just about reading something until you understand it. Now, if that's written in language that's immediately recognisable to you, you just you, you read a line and you understand what it means. Right. And with Shakespeare, it just takes a bit more work. But the process is to get to that point. I think people get a bit... It feels... It can feel a little mystical to people that yes. there is some great key to it, that there's some slightly nebulous 
talent that you have to imbibe from great Shakespeareans of yesterday. That, and if you can sniff the hem of their garment, you will somehow be mystically inclined to be able to interpret the bard's words, which is bollocks. It's just, it's just about, you, 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 you know, you have a line of text and you just have to break it down until you understand it, until when you read it, it's the same as reading the first line of the New York Times articles yesterday. So, right. so that it's just words that you understand. And that's just, because it's old language, it just means you have to put a bit of effort into it, whether that's sitting around in a rehearsal room and all discussing it until you've unlocked the meaning. It's just like if you read a novel and there's a word you've never seen before and you look up in a dictionary and you go, and you go oh, it means that. And you read the line again. Yes. And meaning, but there's no mystery to it. It's just a bit of, it's sort of wrestling with it until your brain decodes it when you read it. And then it, it hopefully it's, it's then transmitting that meaning to an audience. Who, who probably didn't do that work. Who probably didn't do that work, but you can help them, maybe not all the way, but you can help them some of the way by, by understanding it yourself and therefore seeing it in a way that makes it more understandable. Right. Well, that's the thing. That's the great mystery to me of acting is that you can speak someone else's language and in this case, a language that's very impenetrable at first and make it transfer emotion. In Richard II, the final speech it's a very nihilistic philosophy of existence is meaningless. Yes. It brings up the great mystery for me of how an actor can, because clearly talking to you, you are not a nihilistic person. Well, I can have my moments. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Like, I wonder how you give weight to a philosophy that's so f- different from yours. I don't think I was joking when I said, you know, I have, I have my nihilistic moments. And that's what, you, that's what that process is. It's about recognizing oh, he's feeling like, I, 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 can, I, I can recognize what that feeling is. I might not feel it ordinarily, but I've, I've had moments when I've been there. So, that, so, that, so then you're trying to kind of evoke the sense of what that memory is. And then if you've got words like Shakespeare, even, they might be initially hard to decode, but once you've decoded them and once you're kind of inside those words, they do the work for you as well because that... They're so powerful, actually, and, and, and the way he conjures thoughts, if you then put those thoughts in your own brain and in your own mouth, that can evoke a sense that might be familiar to you from elsewhere in your life. So it's about sort of channeling those things in the right moments, I guess. Like, like you know, they, they become colouring pencils. You just well, I'm colouring that bit in with, oh, yes, that, I know where that colour is, sort of in my bank of emotional memory, I suppose you'd call it. Uh, so I, I, it's that, it's that colour. I'll colour that in with a bit of that and, more and a bit of that. You know, and, you're, and you're sort of drawing senses that you recognise and that are familiar to you and combining them in, in perhaps a new way to create the experiences of someone else. Is that sort of the essential thing for you is to, is to actually find some common ground with everything so that you can remember an emotion that you would have to it? I think everything has to be relatable. It doesn't mean that you need to have murdered someone to play a murderer but you have to think well you have to do, I suppose you, there's an imaginative leap isn't it you're thinking well, I, I know how doing various things makes me feel uh, so how would I feel if I did that thing which I have this emotional reaction to if right. I you know when I shock myself I know what that feels like if I horrified myself then it would be it would feel a bit like that but but with a bit of that brought in and it would and, and the sort of so yes you're always you're always relating it back to what you can experience of a moment. And sometimes that's easy, because sometimes it's like, I know exactly what it's like to pick up a mug. Sure, sure. Uh, I don't maybe know exactly what it's like to play, a, to be uh, the despotic ruler of a country. But I can kind of, I can project forward enough senses, moments of my own experience to kind of 
amplify them and colour them in and turn them up and, and uh, that I suppose if there's a trick it's that it's trying to relate things that you recognise to things that perhaps you don't and try and draw a line between them. Yeah, when you say the despotic ruler of a country, I think that's where the confidence has to come in because if, if your self-critical voice is all of a sudden saying, well, how, how am I going to do that? Yeah. What is the work that no one sees that gets you past that and to the confident place? <laughs> <laughs> sort of sitting in the, crawling around in the fetal position on your bathroom floor, <laughs> kind of going, why, why am I, why do I think I have the temerity? Um, I, I don't know. It, 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 each process is slightly different, but... Is there something, though, that's recognisable every time where you go, that the time is going to come where I, I'm going to have lost the plot for a with while? A, and... With a theatre production, there's always a moment just before the very first public performance where you think, what the hell? Why? Never do this again. Never find yourself in this position because this is horrible. That moment just before you kind of do it for the first time, when it just feels impossible. What do you think that is? It's quite sensible, really, because it is, you know, I mean, why? It's, it's, a, it's like jumping out of a plane, you know? That sense that you will step out and you will remember a sequence of things that, yes, you've rehearsed them, but you've never done that in a room full of people who are all staring at you. Not only staring at you, but wanting to get something from it, expecting to be impressed or entertained. Or well, that's I mean, oh. that's the thing that gets me, like that you're supposed to go out there and do it in a way that all these other people are going to be mm. somehow um, inspired or, or they're, they're going to be moved. Yeah, and I mean, often you do. You 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 fall back on the idea that you're not in it on your own, that you're part of a company. But there's sure no company though in a long like speech in Hamlet or in. Well, Hamlet <laughs> was the was the, very much the the peak of that. I, I did Hamlet whilst I was doing Doctor Who, so therefore it also got, got a lot of attention simply because it, people, it never occurred to me that Doctor Who and Hamlet would be seen as things that were, that were wildly divergent. But then, so then when I was doing Doctor Who, it got a lot of attention and that, that makes you nervous, you know, that, it's, that there's, there are articles being written about the great Hamlet. Will this be another great Hamlet or will this be a damp squib? Will this be a, a John Gielgud or a, I don't know who the, who the, who terrible, the bad Hamlet who the is. Terrible examples might be. <laughs> but th- when you start inadvertently coming across articles like that, you kind of go, oh, oh, holy shit. Okay, this is quite scary now. And then, again, just because of the peculiar attention that Doctor Who gets, not to do with me, to do with the role I was, I was in the middle of at the time, on the ver- for the very first public performance of Hamlet, for which I was already quite nervous because it was quite a big deal. I was playing sure, Hamlet yeah. at the Royal Shakespeare Company. That was something, that felt like a life moment. I was already kind of, you know, dry, dry mouthed at the prospect. Yeah. And then near to my dressing room, the, 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 the BBC News 24 truck pulled up and I thought, oh shit, they're covering this on rolling news. <laughs> they're, they're actually here to kind of go, so did he mess it up? Um, that was probably the, the the single most terrifying moment. And I We're outside that, the Old Globe Theatre to see if Doctor Who can pull this off. Exactly <laughs> that. Exactly that. And you thought, oh, jeez. So if I get this wrong, it's going to be beamed around the world tonight. Instantaneously. Turns out he couldn't do it, folks. <laughs> um, a sonic screwdriver couldn't save him this time. <laughs> so he, that was a that was a tricky moment. I remember that um, the the the, the royalties were coming over. Uh, had a wonderful. Um, voice uh, expert called Lynn Darnley, um, who I'd known for years because she's the mother of a friend of ours by chance. 
and Lynn was so helpful through that whole process. And, uh, and she came in to see how I was before the, before the first performance. And I was actually in the fetal position on the floor of my dressing room. And but for Lynn Darley kind of talking me down off the, off the ledge of the building that night, I may never have managed to get on stage as Hamlet. So Lynn, she knows, but very few other people know that she absolutely saved me that night. No yeah. kidding. Yeah. What do you think keeps bringing you back to I don't know, it doesn't make any sense. Honestly. Why would you put yourself through that? It's horrible. It sounds horrible, doesn't it? I wonder what that is, because I did read that you said that when, when theatre goes well, it feels like flying. Yeah. And when it goes bad... I don't even know if you finished the sentence. No, I don't know. I don't know how bad it. I don't know what it is, but it, it, it's torture to be stuck in a show that's not working and having yeah. to plod through it every night. But yeah, when it works, especially when it works with something like Hamlet, when you've got those words and you feel, however, haltingly that you're in control of them now and again, and it does. It is like taking off. Yeah. Hey folks, let's take a break from the conversation so I could tell you about this week's sponsor, Shady Rays. Shady Rays is an independent sunglasses company, so they're not a big corporation that overcharges for sunglasses, because everybody knows that sunglasses are, well, overpriced. Shady Rays is out to do it differently and give people a lot more bang for the buck. Now they sent me two pair of sunglasses, and I have to say I love them. They're lightweight, they're polarized, they have great lenses, and they look good. I've always been sort of a classic sunglasses guy, you know, aviators or wayfarers or something like that. And I love the way these look and I've been wearing them ever since they sent them to me. And I just think they're great sunglasses. And I do a lot of things outdoors. I do a lot of motorcycle riding and skateboarding and trips out with my kids to the desert and in the water and at the beach. And the sunglasses hold up really well. Not only are they super durable and light and they look good, but They don't cost a lot of money, so it's kind of a no-brainer to look into Shady Rays. I can't tell you how many times I've pulled into a gas station or a drugstore and had to just grab a pair of sunglasses off the rack, and, you know, it feels like throwing away money because you lose your old ones or because they break. Well, the craziest thing about Shady Rays is the warranty. Their goal is to have the best warranty in all of eyewear. You won't find anything stronger. They include free replacements if the shades are lost or broken for any reason. It doesn't matter what happens. You can drop them in the ocean. You can run over them with your truck. You can step on them. You can just leave them behind and they'll replace them for just a small shipping and handling fee. And then you're back in business. Try that with any high-priced sunglasses and see what they tell you. Plus, the quality of every pair is guaranteed for life. But even with that strong of a warranty, they still manage to make a pair of quality sunglasses. And best of all, most Shady Rays are only $45. They also provide 10 meals to fight hunger in America with every order placed, and they've provided over 4 million meals to date. Now, I'm not sure how they do that. It's a weird thing. You buy a pair of sunglasses, they don't cost that much money, you lose them, they send you another pair, and somehow they're feeding people at the same time. Maybe they've also figured out cold fusion. I don't know, but I would recommend you jump on this deal and get some Shady Rays because the whole company seems to be doing something right. They stand behind their product and they told our team that if anyone has a problem, they throw a profit out the window and they do what it takes to make it right. Basically, you either love the shades or Shady Rays will pay to ship them back. That's it. And exclusively for our listeners, they gave us the best deal they have to offer. Go to ShadyRays.com and use the code CAMERA for 50% off two or more pairs. That's buy one and get one free, so you can get two pairs for $45. 
This is the best deal that Shady Rays offers, exclusively for us. You can redeem only at ShadyRays.com and use the code CAMERA. And you can also see all their newest and best shades. So check it out, ShadyRays.com, use the code CAMERA, and let me know what you think. Now back to the show. It made me curious, thinking about that moment in your life, if there was any way that you could have been prepared for what was going to happen when that show, when, when you became the doctor mm. and, and you're on the show every Sunday night, did you prepare yourself for the loss of uh, your private life or, or what that phenomenon was like and how people changed around you? I was aware that it would probably happen. I mean, I didn't know if I would make a success of it. I didn't know if it would run, um, but I was aware that just because of the way Doctor Who is received in the UK, if you're ever attached to it, it gives you a certain loss of anonymity. Right. I, obviously, I, wouldn't, I didn't know uh, 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 how sort of deep that would be. But I think the thing about that is you don't know what that's going to be until you experience it. You can, you can imagine what it is, and I think you can imagine it's quite empowering. You can imagine that... Because it, having been around other famous people walking into rooms... Right. You know, oh, and you, you feel the room ripple. You feel people go, oh, it's, it's so-and-so. Look, so-and-so's coming to the room. And you... You imagine that the, that person walking in the room must must be powerful and must that must in, make them feel whether it makes them feel good or not. It must make them feel must give them a sense of status. Right. And then when it happens to you, actually, it doesn't do that. Actually, it just makes you feel vulnerable walking into that room and having people notice you and people sort of turning around and not thinking they can see you going. It's that. He's over there. <laughs> and actually, I. I, mean, I, I, I can't speak for everyone, but for me, that, that, that was quite alarming. I it was? It, yeah, I found that, that sort of journey quite difficult at first. Um, because, yes, you know it's going to happen, and you have, a, you, you have an imagination about what that will feel like, but it, it, it doesn't. I, I said losing your anonymity like that does feel like having a layer of skin taken off. It just, feels, it just makes you feel raw and vulnerable and a bit scared, and it takes quite a lot of getting used to. Is there an indelible memory... Of, of that, like when you're describing the story of a, of a certain event or, or a certain room you were in? I remember just after I was cast as Doctor Who, before I started playing it, I was already, I was in things on TV. I mean, right. occasionally people would know who I was, but I wasn't, I wasn't a celebrity. I wasn't famous or any of those hideous words. And I went to the Glastonbury Music Festival um, and I remember sort of walking around feeling completely anonymous and then somebody sort of went oh you're you're going to be Doctor Who aren't you and, and I thought well, oh yeah yeah and that, that felt perfectly nice right but that weekend I, I, I sort of the first kind of the first sort of echoes of realising oh I, I maybe I won't be able to do things like this in quite the same way ever again right. so that was a, but at that time that was fine and I'm not listen I'm not saying it's not fine there are a lot of huge privileges and advantages to being in the middle of a show that people love. Sure. And Doctor Who's a lovely show to get famous for because people feel very benevolently towards it. People love that show, especially in the UK, but actually around the world, it's got a sort of heritage to it that makes just people just feel warm and happy. Um, so it's a lovely part to be recognised for. It's, it's a show that people have childhood memories of. Uh, they have experiences of watching it with their own children. It, right. it, it, it's a, so, you, so, so I, 
I probably had the best version of what that was. But at the same time, it, it is just, it does take some getting used to. And I, and I, I was very lucky because Billy Piper was in the show with me. She played the, Right, and the she was a big pop she star. Was already right? a, she was a pop star when she was a teenager. And then she'd had a huge success. She was in Doctor Who before I turned up. So she'd already got used to being, she was public property and had been since she was young. Did she help you through that? Hugely. I had her to kind of go through it with. Um, I, I had someone who kind of knew what was easy and what was difficult. I had someone who just got it as well. Yeah. You, you could kind of go, oh, I went to the shops the other day and it was really, it was a nightmare. And you could sort of have that conversation without feeling embarrassed about it or, or because it's, you know, it's not like you don't know what you're letting yourself in for. So to complain about it is churlish. Right. But at least you can. I don't know who, if you could ever know what it's like until well, it happens. You, no, I don't think you can. And, and you get used to it and you find ways of dealing with it and you find what works for you and what doesn't and you find the places you won't go to anymore and you find the places you're, where you're willing to put up with certain things and you find disguises and you, and you know. And it, it, but again, these are all, these are very fortunate problems to have, but sure. it still does take some adjusting. And it, I, I want to know what the disguises look like. Well, I can't give that away. <laughs> Trade secrets. So um, when you watch that first episode that you're on of Doctor Who, it must have felt like pressure because you have to come out like you're swashbuckling, witty, confident. Like you cannot ease into that role. You had to sort of go in 90 miles an hour and, yeah. be, and be that presence. And I was just curious about after after loving it so much as a kid, if it felt like pressure, if it, or if it felt like this is what I've been waiting to do my whole life. Well, I couldn't pretend I wasn't prepared. You know, I'd, been, I'd watched every episode that had existed. So right. I knew the show. I knew... And I had a great script, and that's what it came down to. Yeah, it's funny, because it's, it, you're stepping into a role where you're a different human embodiment of yeah. this role that's already in service. So in some ways, are you sort of calling on other actors' performances? I'm not sure. I think probably because I knew the show so well and I'd been right. a huge fan of it, inevitably I probably did, but not specifically. I didn't say, I'll do that that Tom Baker used to do and I'll steal that from Peter Davison and I'll do Colin Baker's yeah, yeah, yeah. funny hand gesture or whatever it might be. I didn't do any of that. I just sort of... Uh, I just... I saw the script and I, I thought, well, I know this show... I've been sort of preparing for this all my life on some subconscious level. Did you call um, your dad when you got cast? Um, I didn't. I, it was one of these top secret things because it, again, because it was it's such a big deal, particularly right. in the UK. It was quite a toxic secret to have to keep, and you were very aware that I didn't want to. I didn't want to give anyone else the burden of that, so I just sort of kept it to myself for weeks. And then, just before it got announced, I called my my mum and dad and told them, obviously. Yeah, what I mean, was that, that like? Seemed, well, it just seemed so implausible. Yeah. And they, they just couldn't quite take it in, I think, at first. And then they were thrilled. They were really, and they really enjoyed it. And they watched every episode and they were always very supportive. And I think they just enjoyed the ride that it, that it sort of, I mean, I don't know. It must, have, it must have been very peculiar for them to have grown up with me running around the back garden in my long knitted scarf. And then to see me effectively doing the same thing on national television. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we finish up, I, I want to ask you about your podcast. Oh, yeah. Called David Tennant Does a Podcast With. That's right. Just yes. We could have worked on the titled. title a little bit more. Yeah. No, well, they, but said I, to me, they said to me, you've got to have a name that people can search. And you've got to put your name in the title so that when people search for it, it comes up. So then everything, every version of that was just felt like a naff pun or some <laughs> sort of crowbarring it, my name into some title. So... so 
She said, well, let's just call it what it is. You went with calling a spade a spade. Call a spade a spade, yeah. Well, it's really good. Thank and, you. But you do have that unfair advantage, so to speak, of a lot of these people you're talking to, you've worked in very intimate, long-form ways with. Yeah. Olivia Coleman, mm. obviously Michael Sheen. You know, you've had people on that you've been in shows with. And what I'm curious about is, after being on the other side of interviews for so long, when you had to kind of switch it around, did you get a whole new appreciation for for sort of having to be on the other side of that? Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. But, I, but I'm keenly aware that it's not my, I'm not a journalist, it's not my skill set. And in a way, when I set out to do it, I thought, do you know what, because this isn't my job or my world, I can sort of be whatever it is. So I kind of allowed myself to not feel pressure about it because I thought it'll just be me sitting down with Olivia or Jody or whoever it is. Right. And it'll just be what it'll be. And because it's not my job, if I'm no good at it, it's fine. <laughs> so I allow but, myself. But do not you really to feel, feel that way, fear. or do you still want to be good at it? Of course, you want to be good at it. Of course, you want to be good at it. And you, and but but I sort of I felt liberated by the fact that if I wasn't, didn't matter. I could go back to the day job. Well, uh, it's interesting because I think I think there's a trust factor, obviously. You, the unfair advantage is... Yes, I'm playing on that hugely. My unfair advantage is... Right, but how do you, how do you right also keep that trust and, and, and sort of protect that trust? Oh, because, because it's people like... Certainly with the early ones I did was people I knew very well, and I said, right. we'll just talk, if, if anything comes up, we'll cut it, we'll do this. You know, you, nothing will go out that you don't want to go out. There's, the, there's, a, there's an absolute safety net. And actually, that happened a couple of times that people sort of... And there was one, a couple of moments where we said, tell you what, let's record a bit where we talk about that and we'll decide afterwards whether, whether you want it to go in or not. And right. I can think of one situation where we just... A phone call a couple of days later was like, I don't want that to be in, and it was gone. So, right. so, so I suppose, again, there's an unfair advantage there that, that if, you're, if you're people you know well, they, they hopefully will know and trust that when you say that, it's true. Whereas as a sort of hired hand, you go along to interviews, you don't really know how how much you can trust the person you're talking sure. to or, or what their agenda is. Or So again, I'm yes, shamelessly using that personal connection. Have you yet done one where you didn't know the person? Well? There's a couple of people I'd, I'd never... There was a couple of people I'd... Samantha B. I'd never actually met. Oh, really? Um, I'd done a bit of work for her show and we share an agent. Okay. But that's it. Tina Fey, I didn't really, really know. Whoopi Goldberg, I had met a couple of times um so yeah there there were a, there are a few in there that were yeah. that were sort of a bit more uh a, i felt a bit more like a like a sort of a journalist but again you're coming they were all people i came to with some sort of a sort of personal connection of some kind or a right. professional connection of some kind so there was always a there was a kind of reason why i ended up in the room with them um and and therefore i think that affords a certain level of trust with for them I think right do you find that you can't help but have your own personal things slip out even as the host that you end up having to share more about yourself in in the spirit of mm. this is a real conversation and a little bit a little bit um for instance the woman that I did with Olivia Coleman it, she said something which I'd never realized is that she found the act of becoming famous very difficult and it ended up yes going i remember to therapy that. for it and I, I she never told me that before i hadn't realized that i know olivia very well and in that moment i had ended up admitting to her that i'd done exactly the same thing and that was a comfort that was not something we'd never shared in real life 
And it's interesting, sometimes you don't know how you feel about things yourself. You, you keep certain things back and you don't right. always entirely know why you do it. Like, and in that moment, and it was tight, like it lasts for like seconds in the podcast. We just exchanged that fact with right. each other. And, and then they came, the, the producer of the podcast went, we'll take that out, right? And I thought, will we take that out? And instinctively I went, yeah, we'll take, and then I thought, you know what? I said it, I quite, it was quite nice to get that out there. Let's keep it in. <laughs> right. You know, the, because there, there is something. Because also, why, why, why not share that, actually? Yeah, well, I guess that's something you find out as you go along. Yeah. And, and I, you know, Ian McKellen shared some very difficult personal truths that yeah. I had wondered, like, where that conversation ended up going. I wondered if, if the tables were switched and you were being interviewed, would you be comfortable being that personal? And that is, is that something that comes with, with age? Or, you know what I mean? Interesting. Well, it, it, well, what was interesting talking to Ian is how he'd not discussed his personal life at all until right. he was about my age. And I, I think for a while you were reticent to do that yourself. Yeah, I still, I'm still quite guarded about certain areas, but yeah. I'm, I, I've, I've learnt what I'm comfortable to reveal and what I haven't. And I think that, again, that's something that you don't get told at drama school. When people start being interested in that side of your life, you have to very quickly decide how you feel about that. So I think initially when people started asking me about things like that, I just, I put all the shutters down. Right. And now life's different. Now I'm married with kids. So th- th- that side of my life is much more settled and permanent and of less interest to people as well. Because, of course, they're only really interested in a bit of salacious. <laughs> right. They're only really interested in, in you being married if, if you think it's going to end soon. Yeah. Or you're having an affair with somebody else. And that's, that's not my life. I'm very settled and very, uh, have a very, a very beautifully dull family life. Um, it's, I feel more comfortable talking about it because... Because people are less interested. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Yeah, that is true. I mean, if someone's really picking at you, your, your tendency is to put your guard up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Um, you, you made a comment earlier in the conversation just about, I don't know what a therapist would say about that, but listening to your podcast and, and listening to you talk today, it's interesting that you've chosen acting as a way to sort like that's your filter to understand life mm. because it seems like it's a job that forces all of the reality to the front like you you can't hide from yourself and be a good actor that's true but you get to express things under the cover of pretending to be somebody else which is which right you get to liberate certain things without really admitting whether they're you or not right but then there's this there's this podcast layer which is yeah. a lot closer to the core yeah What's hard about it that you weren't expecting to be hard? The, the amount of homework you have to do yeah. to get to the stage where you feel confident to walk into a room and be able to uh, respond to what comes up, but have the kind of, have all the knowledge in your back pocket of where you would, bits of the conversation you don't want to miss, things that might be interesting. Uh, you just, the amount of time that takes. I mean, you must know that. Yeah. My goodness. Well, I, I always envy the people that, and I don't even know if this is true, but the yeah. people that I talk to who do the same thing and they just go in and, yeah. you know, yeah. whatever happens, happens. Yeah. And I think that one of the reasons I'm drawn to your, to your questions is that it seems like you're genuinely still curious. Mm. Do you find that there are questions that come up that are, uh, maybe that you ask them in a different way, but it's like the same question? I, I, do you find that certain things you're, you're curious about with everybody that's sort of the same theme? 
do you know one of the things that I, I do find I've, en- I've ended up asking almost everyone on the podcast is a lot of what we've just been talking about. How, do you, how did you cope with losing your anonymity? What was your... How did that... Did that feel a, 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 as alarming as I remember? And did it... Did you... How, how have you sort of built your life back up around that? Because right. it, is, it is a bit of a sort of seismic shock to, for that to happen to you, I think. Well, I, I want to close with something. I just wanted to ask, you know, you've obviously done this a long time. Um, you're, you're closer to 50 than you are 40. Oh, jeez. And, and that as can't someone be who's right. going... That can't be true, can it? As someone who, who you know, I've felt the same things um, and I feel so young in my head, I wonder what about your job is still an exciting mystery to you? Well, because you don't know what the next thing's going to be. You don't get bored of stories. None of us, as human beings, we just, we never get bored of stories. And I get to tell stories. And each story is new and different. And so it's a continually renewing thing. And hopefully you are constantly getting better at your corner of the storytelling process. And you're, you can, uh, with each new challenge, you, you sort of have to find a new sort of corner of yourself. Yeah. And it keeps being difficult and it keeps being challenging and, and it keeps being exciting and fun as well, if I'm absolutely honest. I feel a little bit guilty admitting that one's job is fun because, again, that's the Scottish Presbyterian background. Work shouldn't be fun, but I do enjoy it. You know, interesting, I said my sort of, when I came out of drama school, I just wanted to be able to have acting as a job. Yeah. And I, so far, and it's always so far because you never know that it'll keep going, but so far I've managed to have acting as a job, but it still doesn't feel like one. Not what I imagine a job would feel like. The word job seems kind of dull and moribund, and uh, it, my, my job has never felt like that. Have you ever had a straight job? Uh, for brief patches of time, I, you know, I did the usual working in a restaurant and I delivered flowers very, very briefly, but, but not really, no. Well, keep doing that. <laughs> that sounds like the greatest life. Uh, it is, yeah. Well, it's fascinating to talk to you. Thank and you so uh, I really enjoy your work. And we, we just touched on a lot of it. And, um, but, gosh, it's, it's really nice to meet you. Thanks for, thanks for kind of opening up for me. Sam, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Hey folks, that's our show. Make sure to check David out in his new series, Good Omens, on Amazon Prime. Also, if you've never seen him in Broadchurch, you're in for a treat. That's a really gripping murder mystery story that I just fell in love with. And if you missed the phenomenon that is Doctor Who, make sure to check that out. There's just a lot of David Tennant out there for you to love, so you should dive right into his whole career. Also, while you're on the internet poking around, make sure to go to offcamera.com where you can find an entire archive of this very show waiting for you. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, but you haven't subscribed to it yet, I recommend you go straight to iTunes and subscribe so you'll never miss another episode. Also, while you're there, if you leave us a rating and a review, it helps other people find the show. And then over at offcamera.com, you can check out both our television show and our magazine. Off Camera is a multimedia deep dive into iconic artists and their process and their lives. And we've been making the show for quite a long time now, and we've amassed quite an archive of content. 
And if you haven't seen our television show, I also urge you to check that out. We are on DirecTV's audience network every Monday and Wednesday night at 6 p.m. and 9 p.m. You can also find our entire archive of television shows in our television subscription service, which you can get through our website, offcamera.com. For only $4.99 a month, you can have access to every show we've ever done to watch on any device as many times as you'd like. It's a great way to see what you've been hearing, and it also is a great way to support the show. So check that out. It's a great deal. It's 200 hours of content plus. And if you've never checked it out, well, you can see what I look like in black and white talking to these amazing people. Usually I just have this rapturous, excited look on my face that I'm actually getting to have these conversations with people I admire so much. You can also get our off-camera magazine, which is another way to enjoy the show. And with the magazine, you'll see some of the photographs that we make of each guest that comes in to do an episode. Another way you can see those photographs is on my Instagram account. I am Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram, and with each guest, after we're done talking, we go back in my studio and I make some pictures of them. So the Instagram account is another great way to see some of the behind-the-scenes action here at Off Camera. You can also find me at Sam Jones on Twitter. You can find the show at Off Camera Show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We also have an email address. You can just send me an email at sam at offcamera.com. So lots of ways to check us out and to communicate with us. And we only ask that if you love the show, don't keep it a secret. Go on social media, tell your friends, tell your followers what we're doing here. And that way I hope we can keep doing it for a long time. I want to thank everybody that helps out on this show every week. Nathan Shields, Crawford Shippey, Michaela Galvin, Sasha Snow, and Kara Johnson. Those people work very, very hard to bring the show to the world each week, and I'm very grateful. I'm also very grateful that I get to do this show each week, and to you for tuning in. It's a privilege and a pleasure to be able to have these conversations and know that people all over the world can find them. And every time I get a letter from somebody or a social media mention from somebody that a particular conversation resonated or helped them make a decision or taught them a little something about the business, it's so satisfying and I feel so lucky to do this job. In the spirit of that, please join me next week when I sit down with comedian and actor Rami Youssef. The conversation I always wanted to see was what does it look like to have what you believe and then what you actually do. Yeah. And that's a struggle that anyone could have. I mean, it could be you're Muslim and you want to live up to the ideals of your faith, or it could be that you're just trying to live up to your higher self. And what does it look like when you try to do that and you fail? You don't need to be Muslim to get that. You know, you could be someone who wakes up and goes, look at me like I'm eating egg whites for breakfast, and then it's 2 a.m. and you're at Wendy's, and you're like, I've fallen. Rami created the semi-autobiographical and very personal Hulu series, Rami, about a Muslim American trying to come to terms with his own faith. To say it is a unique show would be an understatement, for it's the first show ever to depict Muslim family life on American television. But Rami says it's less about being first and more about the opportunity to tell a nuanced story that feels real, human, and relatable. In making the show, Rami had to really examine his own experiences growing up Muslim in a post-9-11 America. His desire for honesty and transparency about his own specific cultural experience was at times uncomfortable for his family. But as a result of the show, he has found more closeness and understanding, not only with his family, but with his community, his faith, and his art. See you next time, off camera.